This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, Pastor Bruss is on vacation, and I walked by our studio several times this week and thought, you know what? I'm going to go in there and mess around. And so I have got some things uh, picked out for you to take a listen to. Don't really need to have me do a lot of commentary because I'm going to present through others the two sides of holy baptism. So we begin with a guy who is a guest speaker at a church, and we are going to take a listen to what he has to say. Now, he's going to talk about baptism. He's going to get to it. It's going to take him a little bit of time to get there, though. Man, it is not normal what God is doing in our church. It is not a regular, normal, every everyday kind of thing. We got to recognize when there's something happening, when the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives and moving in our hearts. What's going on at Life Point Church is 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 nuts. It's crazy. This past week at Life Point Church, we had 45 people raise their hand and say, "I want to start a relationship with Jesus Christ." Come on, y'all. Come on. Just this morning. <laughs> Just this morning as the worship team was coming out, we, you know, we got ready to start, and all the technology just took a big poop right on the stage, everything. The computer was smoking. A sludge was coming out. I mean, it was bad. It was real bad. And we were like, okay, what are we going to do? We just said, you know, we brought out an acoustic guitar. We just had a moment of worship, and we gave everybody an opportunity just to respond to the gospel. We had six people raise their hand and receive Christ before the service even started. That's crazy, y'all. That's crazy. This year so far, we've had 854 people begin a relationship with Jesus. Come on. 854. Y'all, that's not normal. That's revival. That's not business as usual. That's a revival. That's what is broken being restored. That's what is lost being found. People getting healed, y'all, of physical ailments being healed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. People coming to know the Lord. That's not because we're so slick. It's not because we got laser lights and our pastor is one of the best communicators on the planet, though he is, shameless plug, he's my boss, hashtag. It ain't got nothing to do with all that stuff. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit coming and walking with us when we step out in faith and we step out in obedience the Holy Spirit is moving the Spirit of God who is here with us and who has made a way for us people are going from death to life wow that's incredible now I've included all this for a purpose and you'll see here in just a moment where where this guy's going but that last little bit about people that are moving from death to life. And I am assuming that conversion happens, these 800 and some odd people, without baptism, in that it excludes holy baptism. Well, I don't want to say too much. Let's just let him continue on here for a few more moments. Every Monday morning as a staff, we get together and we talk about the wins of the weekend. And, y'all, that's when those good stories come out. That's why people like turning in crack pipes in the care room and, like, coming in with some, with some disability and God healing it on a Sunday morning. People like, man, nobody expected them to come to church. Nobody expected them. They hated God, hated church, everything else. 
walk in the doors, experience life in Christ. Not us, not our brand, not a logo, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit and submitting and surrendering their life to the Lord and walking out of this place a new creation. Okay, there it is again. The Bible teaches that new creation language is a result of one's baptism. But what we're hearing so far is a large number of people who've made decisions. And as a result of their free will decision, now they're a new creation. Now they've passed from death to life. Let's see what else he has to say. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Nobody would have ever thought to see that person in church. And we see every single week people coming to know the Lord. And it's not just to sit here and beat on our chest and, well, it's just a great church. What a wonderful organization. We've got it all figured out, don't we? Man, it's just the Lord. If he were to remove his presence from this place, every one of these seats would be empty. Well, I don't mean to parse everything this guy is saying here, but please. If the Holy Spirit of God left that place, there'd be plenty of rear ends in the seats. There really would. I mean, you think about... You think about how full Islamic mosques are. The Holy Spirit of God is not there, but it's kneeling room only over there. You know, you think about a KKK rally for crying out loud. You know, there's, there's people hanging off the rafters. The Holy Spirit of God is not there. You think about liberal churches. Now, certainly liberal churches in Europe have been, uh, you know, passed over for parking your bike in there. They've taken out all the pews, and now you can park your bike in the liberal churches, the liberal naves over there. But here in America, liberal churches still, well, there's still plenty of places that have people, and the Holy Spirit is not there. See, just because people are there, that's not the indicator that the Holy Spirit is present or is not present. You're going by here what you see rather than what you hear. We as Christians go by what we hear, the promises that are made in the Scriptures, not by what we see. So be careful here. If he would remove his presence from this place, something would happen, something would shift, and everything would change, and we'd be going, well, I don't know what it is. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit making things new. I love this passage of scripture in Revelations. I almost said Revelations. I did. I'll own it. I'll own it right now. There's a passage of scripture in Revelations that says, Behold, I am making all things new. Yes, it does say that. And oh, I really struggled in correcting him on this. It is the book of Revelation. There's only one revelation. There's not multiple revelations. And so the question is, how does he make all things new? Can you believe that for a minute today? Behold, I am making all things new. Is the Holy Spirit doing that in your life, making all things new? Are you allowing the work of God in your life to making all things new? Oh. <laughs> so, so this is up to me? Oh, please tell me. The Lord making all things new is not up to me. Please tell me that. What was broken can be restored in your health, in your marriages, in your relationship with your children. God wants to do that. God wants to do that in your life. He wants to reconcile you to the Father. That means reunite you, reunite you with your dad, your heavenly dad. And through that, make you 
new, transforming you from the inside out. Almost 900 people going from death to life. From death to life. This is illustrated beautifully in uh, this, this pa- these passages of scripture in Romans and, and, and kind of in the church world, we call this the Romans road. And it kind of gives you a clear picture of what is happening in people's lives right here in Wilmington, right here at LifePoint. Now, I know most of you are not going to believe me when I say this, but I am so glad this guy is talking about the Romans road. And if you're unfamiliar with the Romans road, this is an evangelistic technique. I think I was taught it in middle or high school. And what it does, uh, you know, rightly so, it's going to take a number of different verses. Sometimes you will hear four or five verses, sometimes as many as six it's going to start with Romans 3.23, and then I believe go to Romans 5.8, and then Romans 6.23, and then end on Romans 10.9 and 10. Now, it's a good presentation of the bad news, and then a good presentation of the good news. However, it doesn't tell the whole story. But what he says here at the beginning, as he goes through it, is really good. And I want you to hear it. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That means that we're all sinners from the moment that we're born. We're born in sin. We might look cute and innocent, but anybody who's ever parented a child knows that that lasts just as long as that child is able to lay there and not get up and move around. Regardless of whether the child gets up and moves around, he or she is still born in sin. What this guy does not realize is because he has been born in sin, this affects everything. You'll hear people say all the time that we're born in the image of God and we're made in the image of God. Ah, Listen, because of the fall and because we're born into sin, that has affected and corrupted that image. It has also made it where our will is broken. So I'm sorry, I won't belabor the point anymore. His first point about being born dead in our sins and our trespasses, man, This is really, really bad. You never have to teach a child to tell a lie. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a child to steal. We're born with sinful nature in us. We were born in sin. All of us have sinned. We fall short of God's glorious standard for our life. But here's some hope. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say anything in that passage of Scripture that that would make us believe that we have to get ourselves right before we can receive Christ. While we were still sinners, while we were still in sin, right now, Christ died for us. And everything that we've ever done, everything that we're doing now, everything that we will ever do, Christ died for us. For us, here's why he had to die. Romans 6:23 says, "For the wages of sin, which is the, the, the penalty for sin, is death. We deserve the consequences of our sin. We deserve to make payment. We deserve to pay a penalty for our sin and everything that we've done. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Come on, y'all. What this looks like, 
is that you and I have, have, have committed criminal behavior before a perfect and almighty God. Born into it from the moment we drew our first breath. Guilty. And everything that we've ever done that's made your mama cry, everything that you've ever done that you felt guilty or shameful or remorseful about, every sin, everything that falls short of God's glorious standard, we are guilty of. And if you just imagine, we're standing before the judge and we're ready to get that sentence passed down to us, but someone, some stranger kicks open the back doors, walks in and says, give me their punishment instead. Punish me for what they have done. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us on the, on the cross. An agonizing and torturous death on the cross for you and for me. Paying the penalty once and for all for our sins. Everything you did yesterday, everything that you're going to do today, and everything that you're going to do tomorrow. The penalty has been paid for. And all we have to do is to accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. We have to receive it. If someone has given you the keys to their, their Tesla and they go, here you go, and they dangle them out in front of the palm of your hand and they hold it there, when does it become yours? When you take it, when you receive it. How do you do that? This next passage of scripture in Romans tells us how. Romans chapter 10, verse nine says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's read that again, just so we're clear. If you declare with your mouth, you speak it, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say anything in that passage of scripture about church attendance. It doesn't say anything about baptism. It doesn't say anything about memorizing scripture. It doesn't say anything in that passage of scripture about getting your life together, getting your mess together. It says anybody who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. Here's why. Verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's how we do it. We confess it. We say it out loud. And we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We confess with our mouth. We profess our faith. We believe and we're justified. All those things can take place just like that. And it doesn't have to be in church. It could be in your bedroom. It could be in your closet. It could be on a train, on a plane, in an automobile. It could be in your backyard. You could do it in the bathroom. The options are limitless, but the time is now. The time is this moment. All right. So he's gotten through with the Romans road here. And again, I really am grateful that he led the folks there at that church through these verses. However, I mean, anybody with any modicum of understanding of the book of Romans, they realize that this is... Well, it's not the complete picture. I mean, look, if you got your very first DVD player, I realize most people don't even know what a DVD player is because everything is streaming online, but if you got your first DVD player and your very first movie that you got was, say, I don't know, um, Lord of the Rings, 
And the Lord of the Rings, the very first one, not even the whole box set or what have you, the very first one, you put it in, and they said, listen, if you really want to get the gist of this movie, go ahead and skip to chapter 3, and then watch, you know, for these 10 seconds, watch this part, and then skip to chapter 5, and watch a few seconds of that, then skip to chapter 6, and then skip to chapter 10, and then when you watch those little portions, eject it. You've got the whole thing. Please. Nobody would ever do that. And the point that I'm trying to make is, is that even though the Romans Road is really good on expressing the good news and the bad news, it does not deal sufficiently with how the goods are delivered to you. Romans 6 is the place where we learn how the goods of what Jesus did on the cross are delivered to you. And the Romans Road, or at least what he has presented thus far, doesn't even cover any of that. So with that being said, I am going to turn it over to, well, another podcast. Isn't that crazy? I told you Pastor Bruss is out of town. And I've got a friend of mine who is an Anglican. He was just as fed up with the non-sacramental evangelical life. And he went Anglican and he started a podcast with another guy whom I don't know. His name is Father Miles and they talk about baptism. So I'm going to turn it over to them because, my goodness, they've done their homework. And what they're going to discuss now is what we find in Romans chapter 6. Well, would you like to read for us our next passage from Romans 6? I'd be happy to. This begins Romans 6, uh, verse 1. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the sinful body might be destroyed, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. But I think the most important thing is the way that you see a kind of double action happening in baptism. That is dying to sin and being made alive in Christ. Right. It's the twin themes we talked about from of salvation and judgment. Exactly. That water carries. Exactly. Yes. And and so when one is baptized, and, and notice, I mean, Paul is not using this metaphorically. He's not saying, you know, baptism is a symbol of a time that you were made alive and, and died in Christ. It's it's in baptism, you can have confidence that this is what happened. Now, what do you say to someone, Father Wesley, who says, oh, well, he's saying baptism, but he's referring to the spiritual baptism, which is just our conversion into Christ. 
that, well, first of all, that is not at all how any church fathers read this text ever uh, until, you know, 1600 years after the fact. Second of all, uh, there's nothing indigenous to the text that would make that distinction between spiritual and physical baptisms a tenable thing to read into it. So that's really only something that you can derive if you come to the text with the presupposition that spiritual baptism is somehow separate from physical baptism. And I I think that textually there's no case for that. Yeah, I I knew an Anglican priest in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was raised in a tradition that was very non-sacramental. And he ended up going to seminary in a non-sacramental tradition, even serving as a pastor before becoming Anglican. And he always would joke and say, one of the most amazing things I learned when I became Anglican was that in the Bible, water means water. Because in all these references to baptism and water and washing in Paul, he was taught. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about. But imagine these early Christians. He's writing a letter to not theologians, but to lay people. And they hear baptism. They're going to say, oh, yeah, I've seen Brother Didymus get baptized. I was there when I was, you know, I was baptized. We all know what he's talking about. So I I agree. I think it's an imposition upon the text to say he's referring to something mystical, ethereal, and not just, nope, I got doused with some water one time. Yeah. And you even, I mean, you even see the symbolism there. I mean, given it Paul's time, baptism was done by immersion uh, in the early church. And so this idea that, you know, you're buried with him and then you're raised to newness of life. I mean, that's very much what immersive baptism is a picture of. I mean, I think it's, it's the same picture in sprinkling and things. It's not that the mode changes its effectuality, but that is a good picture of what's going on in baptism, being buried and then being raised. Uh, lifted up out of the waters and and this idea of a new creation kind of happening to the person being baptized. I think that's communicated very effectively through that. And that's probably what Paul has in mind here. And maybe it's just good to say at this point, we'll make one real quick comment that as Anglicans, the mode of baptism is not something we get hung up on. The only thing we would get hung up on is that the mode, whether you immerse, sprinkle, pour, dunk, whatever, is you can't be legalistic about that. We have early evidence from the Didache, which is this document that's written before most of the New Testament even completed, where they're pouring water over people's head. Uh, We have baptizo in the Greek is used all through the Greek Old Testament to just refer to sprinkling. We have the passage I just referenced in Ezekiel where you will be sprinkled clean with waters from above. And then you have probably some form of dunking or immersion going on based on the Jewish rite of mikvah, where they would have gone immersed into water. So the point here is that God uses water connected with his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. The mode, because it's not just a pure symbol, it doesn't matter. Whereas I think for those who believe it's just a pure symbol, like the more Baptistic traditions, you've got to get the symbolism just right. These guys, even though they're Anglicans, have done a fantastic job. I mean, you can tell we have gone from like, I don't know, third or fourth grade all the way up to college level class. You can understand this. You, your brain is not that full of mush that you can understand that we've gone from something that is so elementary to something that is so profound. What these Anglicans, and granted, they're not, they're not Lutheran, but they should be in regard to baptism. They have said that what our previous guy has said is silliness. And they've pointed out that Romans chapter 6, by reading the text, 
tells us that all the goods that Christ won for us upon the cross are delivered to us via the means of baptism. But let's go back to our Yahoo that we began with and see what he says. You can't put it off. You're not promised a tomorrow. You're not promised the next week. The breath you are breathing right now is the one that you've got. So don't miss an opportunity to, to begin a relationship with Jesus. Don't miss an opportunity. Man, we do that every single week here at LifePoint for that reason. Pastor Jeff preaches, and it doesn't matter what he's preaching about. It doesn't matter what, what he's saying. He could burp the alphabet, and 15 people would pray to receive Christ. Really? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But we do that every single Sunday at LifePoint Church, and people come to know the Lord. But we give people that opportunity because it matters, and it's a big deal. It's so important. That's one of the most important decisions that you're ever going to make. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I call it my, my life verse, it is also my Internet password to everything. Maybe I shouldn't say that right now online and in front of a thousand strangers. But it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. It sounds so good. But without baptism, you're not going from point A to point B. And this guy is not telling you that. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. <laughs> their faith, as in their faith that they've just got sitting around somewhere. Oh my gosh, this guy. Faith itself is a gift that God gives. Who wants to begin a relationship with Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and something new is here. You might look the same on the outside. You might have that same beard, that same haircut, but something different is happening in your heart and in your spirit. Something different is happening. You're a new creation. You are going from death to life. <sighs> Whatever. Where are those Anglican guys? I want them to come back. It's not a super popular phrase now. But there was a time when the Christian community that we called this transition being born again. And it comes from a story in the Bible of a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus told him that he had to become born again. And he took that way too literally. He was like, you mean I got to crawl back into my mama's name? Jesus like, no, 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 none of that. We have to believe, we confess, we believe in our heart. God, he took him through that process. We have to be born again. We have to be made new. We have to receive the gift that God gave us through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross. He's not reading the text, is he? What Jesus said was very clear to Nicodemus, and it wasn't about taking him through this process. You know what? I'm going to turn it back over to the Anglicans who do a much better job of explaining what happens between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So in this passage, I think you have the interesting phrase where when Nicodemus misunderstands what it means to be born again and thinks, are you supposed to crawl back into your mother's womb? Uh, Jesus clarifies by saying, no, it's by being born of the wa- of water and the Spirit, uh, both of which are important components in Christian baptism. So you'll hear some people parse this verse in a way that, uh, that makes it sound almost two separate things, right? Like one is born born of the spirit and then one is born of water later you know baptism is kind of the outward working of that but again in an anglo-catholic kind of context we see that as conjunctive with each other the spirit is working in the water of baptism so it's not two separate things but rather one thing and this is this is someone who's a teacher nicodemus so all of this imagery we just gave of of the water from the hebrew canon and in scripture in god's plan when jesus says you must be born which that's that word is 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 born again regenerated nicodemus is going to get that this is he's he's connecting this to uh, with water, with the mention of water, something in the Old Testament. Now he asked this question: How can a man be born to, you know, crawl into his mother's womb a second time? I, I tend to think Nicodemus is being facetious. He's saying, "All right, you're speaking in some code. Tell me what you're talking about." I don't think he actually. I think he knows in his head what "born again" actually means. He wants more detail. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. So, so the idea here, I think that Jesus, uh, kind of in the later part of the passage where he talks about that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit, he's setting up two genealogies in effect. So there is the natural genealogy, the genealogy of flesh, of Adam, and then there's the genealogy of the spirit, those who are born of the spirit. You see the Apostle Paul do this in in Romans and 1 Corinthians, you know, through one man came sin and through another man all will be made alive. But here it's talking about mechanisms, right? So one of the genealogies is by flesh, the the Adam genealogy. It's it's through the transmission of one generation to another, whereas this idea of the spirit is spirit. Those born of the spirit are spirit. It's through baptism. That, that there's this new line. Yeah, and I think it's important to see this passage within the context of John. Just before this passage is John the Baptist doing baptism, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when Jesus approached. So baptism's going on. And then right after this passage, more baptisms are going on. And so this passage is set within the wider framework of John's gospel in the midst of water baptisms. I think it also bears importance to mention that the universal consensus and understanding of John 3 for 1600 years, including someone like Martin Luther, is that this passage is a reference to holy baptism. Oh, of course it is. 
<sighs> but the Yahoo that we're listening to, he doesn't believe that. He doesn't even know it. For you to step into the truth of what God is doing in your life, at some point, you have to become public. While following Jesus is personal, it was never meant to be a, just a private thing. For you to be able to take the next step in what God is calling you to be, you have to take your relationship public. The way we do that these days, the way we take relationships public these days are as, uh, through Facebook, right? That relationship status. <laughs> Some of y'all been it's complicated for a long time. <laughs> y'all need to get off that bus, okay? It's time for us to go public. And the way that we go public as believers in Christ, the way that we go public is through baptism. Baptism. Okay. The way that we go public is through baptism. This is crazy talk. I'm going to turn it back over to the Anglicans, who clearly have done their homework. And what they're going to do, if you'll pay attention, they will lay out something absolutely extraordinary. But before we do, let's let this Yahoo say this. I want you to say this with me. You ready? Say, baptism is a big deal. Say, baptism is a big deal. One more time, baptism is a big deal. We're going to talk about why baptism is a big deal today. Whatever. Let's learn why baptism is a big deal. So uh, talk to us a little bit about biblical themes when it comes to water, Father Miles. Right, yeah, so kind of connecting with our last episode about the sacramental worldview. I think we, we looked at scripture and scripture really lays this foundation of seeing the physical world as the arena through which salvation is played out and comes to us. And so what you can do when you're looking at scripture, uh, just a helpful tool for studying scripture in any way is to take a theme, take an image, an idea, a picture, start in Genesis and just trace it. Where does this image show up from Genesis all the way to Revelation? And if you can do that, if something is in Genesis and it's in Revelation, chances are it's really important for the overarching narrative of Scripture, where water is one of those things. And so let's just take a few moments and, and walk through this theme of water in Scripture. And so you've got water showing up early, early. Genesis cha uh, chapter one, verse two, water is this essential element in God's creation. And, the, and, and right there, we read that the water is covering the earth. So you get this picture of the globe that is just uh, every, there is all it is, is deep, chaotic water type of idea, which would have been a very ancient Near Eastern concept. But right there, rather than it being chaotic necessarily, the Holy Spirit is hovering. So from the beginning, water the work of the Holy Spirit is this connective idea. And then you move into Genesis chapter two, or I guess before moving there, you see that it's actually out of the water that creation comes. The ground seems to emerge from the water. So water has this creative force. So creation, water, Holy Spirit. And well, don't forget the word, right? You've got new life coming from water and word with the spirit hovering above the chaos and the darkness of the water. I just wanted to throw that in there.
Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden, water is there, again, a prevalent theme. You've got these rivers flowing out of Eden, and they're important because they point towards life and flourishing, where the center being Eden, the Garden of Eden, which is where God is communing with mankind. And so water becomes this sign of blessing and provision. And then you move into Genesis 3, the fall takes place, and after the fall of mankind, uh, the water image shifts. It can still be an image of life and blessing, as we'll see, but it also becomes an image of judgment and destruction. And, there, and there's really no other way or, or no other better example of this than, than the flood. In Genesis chapter six, you have judgment on sin, on this wicked world being poured out by God through water. And so water still has this life-giving effect because it purifies the earth. I mean, this is how we use water all the time. We hopefully take showers or baths every day. Water, it destroys the dirt or washes it away, but that brings life and cleansing and purity to us. So these images that we would expect water to carry, it's carrying right here in the flood. And so you then have these twin themes connected to water, judgment and salvation, because through the waters of the flood, Noah and his family come out, and there's something of a recreation of the world. And if you think about other narratives in Genesis, you do see the water theme kind of representing salvation, which is interesting. Uh, The wells in Genesis, if you do a study of the various events that happen at wells in the Old Testament, it's very fascinating. So a couple that just stick out to me are, uh, this uh, this is where Isaac's wife is found at the well. Um, so there is a salvific kind of component to that in the sense that, uh, that the line is continued, the seed is continued through this water, uh, but also the Hagar and Ishmael story, uh, as they're cast out from Abraham's camp and Hagar thinks that, uh, they're going to die in the wilderness, uh, and that she puts her son under the bush and she walks away. And then all of a sudden it says the text in the text, her eyes were opened and she saw there was a well of water there. So the spirits work opening her eyes so that she can see this life sustaining factor that she missed before. That is very much a picture of what happens in baptism. This idea of regeneration, one's eyes being open to this truth. And so I think you see, you see that pattern repeated at the, at the wells. Before we, before we move to access, let me just say one more thing about the flood story that I forgot to mention was water covers the whole earth again. And so, and then you see the dove hovering over the water, trying to find a place to land. So you, you have the same image of the Holy Spirit who is later represented by a dove. And even here, as the church father said, and the water is recreating the world so that a new man comes forth, Noah and his family. And now he ends up sinning. Interestingly, on through a plant, through a tree, he gets drunk off the fruit of the vine. So you kind of have this pair. He's a, he's a new Adam but he fails just like the first Adam. The point I'm trying to make though is water recreates the earth. So recreation, renewal, regeneration become connected to this water. So moving on, the next great water episode in, in scripture, I would say, is, is the Exodus. Israel is it become it's this is trying to escape. Pharaoh's at their back. You've got the Red Sea at their front, and they are stuck. But God uses water. It becomes a means of Israel's salvation, deliverance, and a means of Pharaoh and the armies 
judgment because Israel passes through the water safely. Pharaoh follows them behind and gets destroyed. Water is both their salvation and their judgment. Um, and so it's important to note that I think that this episode of the Exodus, this is like the gospel of the Old Testament. This is the good news of the Old Testament. Just as we in the New Testament era, we're constantly looking back to the death and resurrection of Jesus as the foundation of our faith. The Old Testament believers in the Psalms and the prophets, etc., they always refer back to the Exodus as like that primary event of their salvation history because it's what really birthed them as a new nation. And so it's interesting for us to see that this Old Testament gospel, as it were, sets the pattern for the New Testament gospel, freedom from sin, from from slavery. But how do you get to the promised land? It's through water, a water that both saves and destroys. And so then we can look at like Leviticus and there's just various examples of washings and rituals and the use of water. And it shows us then here another idea connected with the water. Somehow water makes us fit for God's presence. It ritually purifies us, which we see in the Exodus where it cleanses the world of sin, but now it's personal, it's individual. And particularly, I think we see this best in a place like Leviticus 8, where the Arionic priests are completely bathed in water. And so, and that's part of their ordination. So for them to be able to go into the tabernacle to worship God, they have to be fully doused in water. It's this beautiful image. And again, I think you see this in this wonderful part of the Old Testament. And this is in 2 Kings 5. You've got Naaman, the Syrian commander. He comes down with leprosy, right? This would have been a death sentence. And he is then told by his little servant girl who's an Israelite, go see Elisha the prophet, go see Elisha. And so he finally goes. He doesn't get the royal welcome he wants. He expects Elisha to do this great grand miracle and heal him of leprosy. And Elisha simply says, go dip seven times in the Jordan River. And the Jordan River, as King or commander Naaman even says, is this small, dirty river. There's these great, wonderful rivers in Syria he could have went to. But what happens? God, Naaman eventually does this, and God heals Naaman through a mystical washing of water. And so then we see water's restorative healing effect. But this is just compounded when you return back to Leviticus, and you realize that leprosy in Leviticus was one of those grand things that separated you from the presence of God. If you had leprosy, you were not only cast out of the temple, the tabernacle, you were cast out of the camp. It, it represented sin and the, and the corruption of this world. And so here God uses water, something every faithful Israelite would have seen as something that makes you ritually pure, to cleanse leprosy, something that makes you ritually impure. But who does he do this to? A Gentile. A Gentile would now be made fit through water seven times to go into the presence of God. So I think that's huge. Absolutely. And so moving on, we'll, we'll, there, there's so many other water references in the Old Testament, but let's just take one from the prophets to show that kind of every major section of scripture really interplays with this theme. Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a prophet that spends a lot of time talking about the new heavens, the new earth, the recreation and redemption of the world, the end of all things. And, and in his visions, at one point, he sees the temple and he sees a lot of elements in the temple, rocks, stones, things like this. And they're all related to the Garden of Eden. And he even says that there's a river flowing east from the temple out into the world. And he calls it the river of life. So we're, we're having these paradise images, Garden of Eden images. 
And he says that this river corresponds to the Spirit's redemptive power. So again, Holy Spirit, water, redemption, recreation. By now, the themes are becoming, um, they're just repetitive. And so the theme of, of new life, creation is all tied up with God is going to renew the world through this river of water. But then you jump a little to Ezekiel 36, 35. It gets applied to the individual. God will sprinkle us clean with water and give us new redemptive regenerated hearts and so this is this is a prophecy of holy baptism so the old testament if you if you kind of look just at the old testament canon you see water playing this huge role as an image as a symbol as a means of god's redemptive world one, uh, if we're gonna if we're gonna take a passage from each major section of the Old Testament, we should probably do a poetic book as well. Thinking of Psalm one, where the wise man is like a tree planted by what streams of water. So it's this 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 idea of living in tune with God in the presence of of this divine life that we are given in baptism is much like a tree that grows out of this really fertile land because of the water there. And so I think, I mean, very similar to what it is that you're saying, but I just think it's everywhere in Hebrew scripture. And even, I mean, probably one of the most famous passages of the Old Testament is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside what? Still waters. Still waters. So water is a sign of calm and purity and the nourishment of God. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And what we would say from a sacramental worldview is what came first, the water or the image, or, the, or we would say the reality of God's presence. And the fact is, is God created water in this way to be an image pointing towards the type, the ultimate reality, which is God's restorative spirit and love and nourishment to us. Okay. And listen, they're not done. But uh, this is um, this is excellent stuff. These these Anglicans, man, they're they're on to something. Actually, what I find so interesting is both Father Miles as well as Father Wesley, they came from a sacramentarian view in that they were raised uh, Baptistic. I don't know about Father Miles, but uh, I know Father Wesley's background. And so, like myself, when a sacramentarian comes to discover that baptism really does something and that the Lord's Supper really does something and that God uses physical things to bestow spiritual blessings. And then when you go back through your Bible and start reading it, you see it everywhere. And you can tell, man, these guys are excited about this stuff. It's like, how did I miss this? But man, it is easy to go through the Christian life and uh, just believe that, yeah, I'm born dead in my sins and my trespasses, but all I've got to do is just, you know, just make a decision for Jesus. Speaking of that, let's go ahead and check back in on the guest speaker. We'll come back to the Anglicans in a little bit, but let's see what he's up to. In our church here at LifePoint, we see a lot of people begin a relationship with Jesus, and that is awesome, and we're so grateful, and we're so thankful for that. But at the same time, and for some reason or another, we see people who say yes to Jesus, but they say no to baptism. And the, the numbers aren't even close. If we've had almost 900 people begin a relationship with Jesus here, we have baptized 77 people so far this year. Now, hallelujah, that's awesome. 77 people have decided to come out publicly and say, I belong to Jesus, and I'm not ashamed, and I don't care who knows it. 
I want everybody to know, 77 people have made that decision publicly. We do it during our worship service, and it's awesome. I get fired up every single time. But if we've had 854 people pray to receive Christ and only 77 people who've taken that next step, it means that some, we gotta do something a little bit differently because people are starting a relationship with Jesus, but they're not letting anybody know about it. Oh, this just pains me to hear this. I mean, obviously he realizes and the staff there at this church realizes something's wrong. You've got this huge number of people who've made decisions for Jesus and just a a smattering of them have, in his terminology, submitted to baptism. But what are you going to do? I mean, what changes are you going to make? The only thing that you can do is beat the people over the head. Baptism is not seen as gospel. It's not seen as gift. It's seen as law, something to do, something you're commanded to do. Just do it, darn it. The best part, as I've listened to this sermon, the best part of baptism is not what God does. It's what everybody on the shore does because he goes on and on about how everybody just erupts in excitement and applause when someone is baptized. It's like, oh, I've never had a bunch of people clapping for me. This would be great. I think I'll get baptized. This guy just does not know, does he? He doesn't realize how good God is and that he's actually made promises which he bestows on a person who is baptized. It's sad, but this guy or you who might be listening to the Pluck Chicken podcast doesn't have to take my word for it. Let's check back in with the Anglicans and see what they say about this. That's right. And one of the big topics in this debate is about the issue of baptismal regeneration. So when is one made regenerate by the Holy Spirit in relation to their baptism? So, you know, the Baptists, it happens before you're baptized. The Presbyterians, it can happen after you're baptized, uh, potentially, uh, whereas with with uh, Roman Catholics and Lutherans and also Anglo-Catholics, it happens when you're baptized. Okay, big man, tell me more. If you think about monergism and synergism, those two ideas that are constantly kind of put into conflict with each other, monergism is the idea that God works in affecting our salvation alone. And then synergism is the idea that we somehow participate with God in affecting that salvation. And so I think a lot of forms of monergism are unhelpful, particularly double predestination type of monergistic systems. But I think when we talk about Catholic Christianity, we have to embrace some form of this sacramental monergism. That's because we believe in the idea of original sin and inability. This idea that when we're born, every fiber of our being is in rebellion to God. And as a result, we can't turn to him by ourselves or even of our own will because the will is so broken. Thinking about Luther's uh, Bondage of the Will book, which is so good. So how do we receive then the benefits won for us by the passion and resurrection of our Lord? And the answer has to be in baptism, the place where the Holy Spirit works. But the beauty of baptism is that it takes away this idea that salvation is because of a decision that I made. It's not in me. It's in the Holy Spirit's work that I was made regenerate. Mm. Now, you see the difference? That right there is gospel. 
And if our guest speaker, who's speaking at his big box church, if he was telling the people the truth, then I guarantee you there wouldn't be such a disparity between those numbers of people accepting Jesus and the people getting baptized. So what's he going to do? How's he going to skin this cat? You can choose, you can choose to follow Jesus and never tell somebody about it. You can, technically speaking. You can decide right now, I want to follow Jesus. You can confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him and you could be saved. You can do that. But what is personal should and must become public. Well, actually, no, you can't. You, you've already told us that we're dead and our sins and our trespasses. So as a result of that deadness, there ain't no choosing. Your chooser's broken. Regardless, that is not what you want these people to do. You do not want them to, quote-unquote, choose Christ and confess Him and then not be baptized. If you're one of those 854-some-odd people who've started a relationship with Jesus, if you're one of those, I want to speak to you today and talk to you about what your next step is. There's a lot of you in this room, man, you've been saved for a long time, but there's still a step that you're waiting to take. Something about you isn't quite right. You don't, you, you've accepted Christ as your savior, but there's a certain amount of power, there's a certain amount of swagger that you feel like everybody else has that you don't have. I wanna share something with you today and talk to you about what one of your next steps might be. Oh, oh, I see. Okay, so we create doubt. That's what we do. Are you missing out on some power in your life? How about some swagger? I'm not even sure what swagger is, but boy, I feel like I need it. And so you're creating doubt that I need more power. Something's not quite right. And so as a result of that, mm, I need to be baptized. That's what it is. My goodness. Can we bring back the Anglicans for just a few moments before my head explodes? Right, so I would say one of the biggest differences between an Anglo-Catholic view of baptism, or I would just say what we're really presenting here is a small c Catholic view, something that Anglicans, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, we should all kind of be on board with, is that versus the other side of kind of a non-sacramental view of baptism is that the emphasis we will place uh, or what we place the emphasis upon is the work of God through the means of water and the act of of the baptism. Whereas generally the other side of, of the bridge, no pun intended, is it, it's a it's a human work of professing faith. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And this is my point. Both sides cannot be right. You either have God doing the work or man doing the work. You either have it as an ordinance or a sacrament. You either have it as God using physical means to bestow spiritual blessings, or you've got a rite that one performs. And even though our guy is doing the best to try to say this is such an important rite, it really means nothing. Now, here's the good news in all of this. For those people who get talked into being baptized at this big box church by this yahoo who really has no theological education gratefully god still 
does the work. I mean, if there's somebody in those waters who's never been baptized, even though they were deceived into believing something completely foreign to the scriptures, that it's a public demonstration of what has already taken place in your heart, God still, he still does the work. He still bestows the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and placing his very name upon that individual. Isn't that, a good, isn't that such a great God that he still gives the gifts? I'm going to turn it back over to the Anglicans. I mean, my goodness, they're the ones who are knocking the ball out of the park. Wow. Yeah. A lot of good stuff there. And one other, before we uh, jump into some of the other specific passages, I think it would also be important to talk about the baptism of Christ in the New Testament. So you had mentioned water figures prominently in the, in the ministry of John the Baptist. And then Jesus goes to John and he is baptized by him. And this is to fulfill all righteousness, as Jesus says. But in that baptism, you see the same themes of original creation being recapitulated. So, for example, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove on the waters uh, and and the Father says, you know, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There's a speaking component to this. And so the idea being that Jesus has yet again initiated a new kind of creation, except this one is different than the floods new creation or some of the other new creations that happen in the old testament this is a this is a shift this is a disjunctive event and you see this because as soon as jesus is baptized as soon as this new creation recapitulation takes place he's driven into the wilderness exactly to be tempted just as Adam was tempted after creation, just as Noah was tempted after creation, just as Israel, after their recreation through the waters of the Red Sea, were driven into the wilderness to be tempted. But Jesus, he, he succeeds at this at this uh, temptation from Satan. And so, yeah, you, these parallels are huge. And I think that the greatest paradigm for Christian baptism is Christ's own baptism. We receive the Holy Spirit. It alights upon us and we are declared by the Father, a beloved child. We're incorporated into the new creation that Christ has initiated. It's all right there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And if there's anything to say, come on, y'all, too, my goodness, that's it. Come on, y'all. Come on. And I know people who are not in sacramental traditions or who are maybe born into a sacramental tradition and later convert to a non-sacramental tradition. And, and those people will get rebaptized. Or even people I grew up with in non-sacramental traditions will get rebaptized two, three times. And each time it's because they really meant it this time is kind of the reasoning that they'll give or, or well, I was a baby, so I didn't know what I was doing. And so now I'm deciding to get baptized again, locating the locus of, of the, of the actor from the Holy spirit to the person deciding to know there's one baptism for the forgiveness of sins and whether or not you felt it because you were a baby or not, or because you weren't in a, uh, in a more evangelical, you know, Baptistic tradition, it, it doesn't matter. There's this happened once and for all. This is music to my ears. It's wonderful. Come on, y'all. Come on.
Let's jump to the very end to just see that water kind of ties the nice bow in the book of Revelation. And so the theme of water is huge in Revelation. You have this sea of glass or what often is called the glassy sea, which means water is very calm. It's as still as glass. And so recall after the fall that, as we just said, water becomes something related to chaos and judgment. Well, here it's restored. It's it's tame. It's calmed. It's a sign of the new creation that the chaos of sin has been taken away. And then at the center, at the very end of Revelation of of God's renewed city is the new Eden, the new heavens, new earth. And again, there's a river of life that gives refreshment to all those that have received a foretaste of this living living river, this spiritual river of the power of the Holy Spirit, which we would say is holy baptism. It's our foretaste of the eschatological river. And so I think if we look at the full counsel of Holy Scripture, we can and we connect all of these water images to baptism, which we'll do in just a moment. I think you could you could walk away saying that baptism, if it, if it's this fulfillment of this water image for us as individuals, it, it bestows on us the spirit like water did at creation. It judges our sins like water did at the flood. It delivers us from slavery like water did at the Exodus. It puts us apart into the royal priesthood like water did for the Levitical priesthood. It heals our spiritual leprosy like water did for Naaman. And it gives us rebirth and regeneration into the messianic kingdom, just like water gave creation, regeneration at the original creation, at the flood, and at the exodus for Israel. This is, again, what I was trying to say. You can't just take a few selected verses out of Romans to the exclusion of the entire biblical narrative. But our boy who's preaching, he doesn't see it that way. Sadly, these hundreds and hundreds of people who have, quote-unquote, confessed Christ, they were baptized as babies. Whatever their religious heritage might have been, they were baptized, and God gave them the gifts there. They didn't need to make a decision for God. God made the decision for them in eternity past. Come on, y'all. Yeah, tell me about it. And then when they came into this church and heard the gospel, God was just returning them to the waters of their baptism. If I could mention just one more passage, one that I think is just pertinent to this conversation of baptismal regeneration is Titus 3, starting in verse 5. Uh, and it talks about Paul's writing. He says, you know, we're saved when the loving kindness of Christ Jesus, our God, appeared and he washed us in the washing of regeneration and the Holy Spirit. And right there, the Holy Spirit, just like John 3, is connected with this washing. Now, does the word baptizo, baptism, show up? No, but again, context. These are a bunch of Christians, or in this case, it's Titus, a minister who's doing baptism. He directly connects the grace of God being poured out on us for salvation, the washing of regeneration through the Holy Spirit. I just think that's another important passage to see these themes of water as we've traced spirit, recreation, regeneration. Paul, boom, ties it together at baptism. Absolutely. So, yeah, so remission of sins transferred from state of nature to state of grace, membership in God's family, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are what we receive uh, when we are baptized. But does our boy know any of this? No, he does not. Just listen to how he closes out the sermon. He's going to lay it on thick. You see, because he's got to boost those numbers. And so with the background music softly playing, he's really going to drive it home. 
But I'm telling you, if you don't take this step, you're never gonna have the power. You're never gonna have that extra, extra thing that you need to live a godly lifestyle. You're not gonna walk in the power of the Holy Spirit if you never learn how to walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. There's something powerful that happens in our lives. And we need to step into it. We need to step into it. I believe that baptism is one of the most significant moments in a believer's life. It's one of the most significant things that we can do. We are declaring that we are forgiven and Jesus is our savior. We're telling our friends and our relatives and everybody else that we are a new creation. And if you're getting baptized next weekend, you ought to be excited. And we're excited for you. But man, I wanna give you this opportunity right now. If you've chosen Jesus as your savior and you've made that very personal decision, I want you to take your phone out right now. You're allowed, it's okay, no one's gonna say anything. Take your phone out right now. Take your phone out. And you can go to lifepointnow.com slash beach and sign up for baptisms. Don't wait. Don't wait any longer. You're not promised another breath. One of the heart... One of the heartbreaking things about being a pastor is that sometimes you get called into situations to go visit people in the hospital. And you get to see firsthand those people laying in hospital beds, they, they never saw themselves there. They were never planning for that moment. But it happens. And it's gonna happen to all of us. And I'm just in some kind of scared, straight tactic I'm trying to put on y'all. But Jesus came that we could have life and have it to the full. The enemy is trying to steal, kill, and destroy and rob us. But Jesus came so that we could have freedom and that we could have life. Let nothing hold you back. Let no fear hold you back. Be in bondage to no excuse. And step into obedience. And do it now. And watch. Just watch. Watch what God begins to do in your life. I mean, you hear that in the background? It just makes you uh, just want to vomit. Because as he said, you're just never going to have it. He said, be in bondage to no excuse and step into that obedience. Because, I mean, if you can't obey the Holy Spirit with this, how can you ever obey what the Holy Spirit has for you? You do this and you, you watch. He's at the end here, and, and of course he's going to pray, and I'm kind of against having him pray for us, quite honestly. But I want you to listen to how he's still closing the deal in the prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, I just thank you and I praise you that you are a king, and that you are our savior. God, I just pray right now that you would fill our hearts with boldness, that you would fill our hearts, Father God, with a commitment to honor you, 
and to step into this next phase and this next season of obedience. To not be afraid, but to step boldly into those waters if we haven't done so before. So that your name would be glorified. So that people all over this city and people all over this state and people all over this world because of that testimony, because of that act of obedience, could be taught how to swim, could be taught how to take another step into the shallows. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. God bless you guys. We love you. Go sign up. Oh, I am kind of glad we're, we're done with that. Have the Anglicans left yet? I hope not. What do they have to say about infant baptism? Now, one question that inevitably comes up is the question to baptize or not to baptize when we're talking about infants. So uh, in all the statements of faith that we read earlier in the episode, pretty much all of them were okay with infant baptism except for the Baptist one. And so Baptists make the argument that baptism is for the believer who has already confessed their faith in God and infants can't do that. So perhaps it's appropriate to dedicate an infant to say, we're going to raise this child in the church and we're going to teach them the truth about God, but they have to ultimately make a decision before they can be counted a member of the church. And so they don't receive the sacraments because they are not old enough or ordinances. And so anyway, so I think it's important for us to perhaps just at least briefly discuss why it is okay to baptize an infant. Um, And I think that the discussion from Colossians 2, where Paul parallels baptism and circumcision, is the place to begin with that. Namely, that for Israelites, when you were born into a Jewish family, they didn't consult you to see if you wanted to be Jewish or not. They would circumcise you, and because of that, you were considered a member of the covenant family. And so similarly in baptism, when we baptize an infant, something similar is happening. Yeah, the infant didn't decide to become a member of the church, but they were baptized into the church because their parents and because the church has decided to accept them. Uh, And so I think that, that it's a really beautiful picture of that monergistic grace that we discussed earlier. I baptized our son uh, last year, and I know you baptized your son as well. not only was it the most special moment of my ministry and probably will be for forever, but it was just a clear picture of how God's grace works. Jude made no decision to come and be baptized, but he received that gift of the Holy Spirit through the baptism of water, having done absolutely nothing to deserve it. And that is how grace works. So I think that uh, it's completely appropriate for us to be baptizing infants because of that. And I also, and I think this is kind of implicit in the, in the Methodist statement where they'll baptize an infant, but they won't necessarily say that the infant is, you know, a Christian, but rather that later they'll need to kind of make their own decision. I think we can with confidence say that when a person is baptized, these are the benefits that they receive, the ones we just detailed, whether or not they're four months or 
four years old or 40 years old. Right. The benefit of baptism is very explicit in scripture. Uh, And so if it's for a child, then God is working faith in that child. Faith is not an intellectual exercise. Faith is something different and a category of its own. And so can an infant believe? And I would say, yes. I mean, an infant trusts. It trusts his or her mother, father. I mean, there's this. And so the Holy Spirit is planting and sowing the seed of faith that must grow and nurture. And one biblical example, too, that's important is the way John the Baptist leaps in the womb because he's near Jesus. I mean, he is not even born yet, and he's already has faith. To which I say, come on, y'all. Come on. So, yeah, that's right. And so just another bit, a few other biblical references, I think, that bring support to this is you've got the jailer who baptizes his whole household and the whole household. There's just in my mind and in research, there's no question that this would have included children. He's right. I'm telling you, the Anglicans have done their homework, but just, you know, as a Lutheran, just take a wild guess where they've really gotten all of this wonderful information from. You know, we've referenced Luther a lot today, and it's because, as I heard one Lutheran pastor say, Luther, above all else, is a, the- is a theologian of baptism. Mm. Like, this is his big... Th- I think this is where Luther shines. I think that, that Anglo-Catholics, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, we need to be reading Luther on baptism. He does it really well. Uh, and so, and this is in Lutheran spirituality. I remember one of the first conversations I had with, you know, I, I serve at a Lutheran church and I had a conversation with the senior pastor there and it was within, I think it was my first or second day there. And this pastor has had two bouts of cancer. And he tells me there's a chance that there's always a chance once you've had cancer that it could come back. And I don't know what I said. Are you, are you afraid of dying? Does that bother you? And he just looked at me and he didn't have to think about it. He said, I died when I was baptized. I don't fear death. And it was a very nonchalant. And I thought, what a, what a Lutheran thing to say. I have been killed and throttled in my baptism. I fear no death. So that wonderful baptismal devotional language, I think it just fills my soul. Absolutely. (laughs) Mine too, my friends, mine too. Well, you've been listening to another episode of the Pluck Chicken Podcast where, well, for the last little while, we've been trying to compare the two differences between a sacramentarian and one who actually believes that the sacraments deliver exactly what God says they deliver. And I wonder, are you one, regardless of where you stand, that can say your baptism is at the center of of your Christian life. I hope so. There's the music, so thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. Come on, y'all. Come on.